From the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's the Broad Ignite podcast. Each month, we feature a researcher supported by this program, which connects rising philanthropists with emerging scientific talent. Learn more at giving.broadinstitute.org slash broadignite. Broadignite, seeding the next generation of biomedical visionaries. Instead of moving around cells with a pipette or um, uh, something more bulky, maybe we could move around thousands of these cells in these tiny little droplets and allow us to do things that would take, you know, years or thousands of years for a single person, but in a matter of hours in these droplet devices. I'm Ilan Mohari, your host for this episode. The human brain is one of the most complex structures in the living world. For centuries, scientists have struggled to understand it. Only in the past five years have state-of-the-art tools, like single-cell technologies, offered us hope of gaining insight into the workings of the human brain, as well as disorders such as schizophrenia, autism, and Alzheimer's. Today, we're chatting with Brodignite awardee Evan McCoskow, who played a lead role developing a technique that allows scientists to analyze thousands of brain cells at once, an advance that could potentially reveal exactly which brain cells are implicated in disease. Evan, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. How did you get into this line of work? When I started college at Harvard, um, I was really interested in uh, what are the sort of social or political prerequisites for uh, amazing scientific discoveries. So I focused particularly on uh, Louis Pasteur and thinking he'd made some really just fantastic, uh, multiple major seminal uh, scientific discoveries in his lifetime and just wondered what were the sort of personal and social uh, elements that really made that uh, possible. But then as I started to sort of think more about the history of science, I wondered maybe I could make some history of my own. At what point in your career did you begin to focus on the brain? did my PhD in a uh, C. elegans lab. This is a tiny uh, nematode, a uh, worm, that has only 300 brain cells. And it's a really great kind of controlled system to understand how brain cells actually give rise to behavior, very simple ones in the case of the worm. Um, but when I got back, I did my uh, MD-PhD, when I got back to uh, my medical training and did a rotation in psychiatry, I was just really struck by the profound debilitating nature of these diseases and really how we had absolutely no cellular or molecular understanding of what was happening to these people. And so uh, I wondered if I could leverage some of my molecular cellular training in neuroscience to start to understand these diseases in some more meaningful way that would give us insights into um, how we could treat them better. When did you arrive at the Broad? I came up for my residency in 2010 and after my intern year started hunting around 2011 for a scientific community that I thought kind of spoke to me or um, could start to inform or be relevant to uh, psychiatric illness. And uh, I met Steve McCarroll, who uh, was directing the, the genetics initiatives at uh, the Broad Stanley Center. And I was just completely struck by the uh, amazing progress that was really being made at the Stanley Center. For the first time, uh, credible genetic hits were being associated with major mental illnesses, which meant that we actually had molecules that might have some relationship to disease and how we could treat it. And this uh, really struck me as exciting and uh, sort of ground shifting. And so I was really inspired by Steve's vision and the Stanley Center's vision of taking these genetic hits and really trying to make some kind of biological mincemeat out of them um, and, and use that, in, that information to, to gain insight into the illnesses. You arrive at the Stanley Center in 2011. What did you decide to work on first? 
At that time, you know, we had gotten some really credible, exciting hits uh, for genes associated with mental illness, and we really wanted to place them in the brain. How, how and when are they functioning and what kinds of cells are they functioning? Um, and at the time, measuring gene usage in cells was a, uh, a process that really involved grinding up a lot of cells into a smoothie because you needed a lot of material and then sampling that smoothie for the amounts of different genes that are present. But we know that cells are profoundly different. Just neighboring cells in the brain are extremely different. They have very different roles. They have different shapes and behaviors. And so uh, we really weren't sampling uh, genes and measuring them at the level that was biologically meaningful. Um, and the only ways of looking at gene usage in a single cell context really was quite cumbersome and, and time consuming and expensive. You could maybe do 10 or 100 cells at once. I mean, some really exciting things were being discovered with that technology, but it really didn't scale in the way that was necessary to look at the complexity of the human brain, for example. How did you hit upon a technique that would achieve that scalability? It was really a product of kind of being inspired by lots of other members of the main large broad community, um, moving cells around in these tiny little droplets. These are um, uh, basically kind of like salad dressing, little uh, uh, water droplets inside of a, um, a an oil fluid that allow the, the individual tiny droplets to be separated from each other, but they can be moved around very quickly and easily. So we could start to envision, well, instead of moving around cells with a pipette or um, uh, something more bulky, maybe we could move around thousands of these cells in these tiny little droplets and allow us to do things that would take, you know, years or thousands of years for a single person, but in, in a matter of hours in these droplet devices. And why was speeding up the process important for getting a better understanding of psychiatric illnesses? Well, the brain is just very complicated. And if you look at 100 cells, you're just not getting the kind of snapshot that you need. It's, you know, it's like looking at 100 people in Boston. Does that really capture the diversity of the city of Boston? You really need to start seeing thousands and thousands of people of seeing all the kinds of ways in which Boston is, is diverse and unique. And it's the same thing in the brain. The cells are just incredibly specialized and we need that kind of scale to really see things. And so, um, uh, you know, we were able to take that uh, droplet technology and, um, and marry it to some novel genomics, and that really allowed us to solve this problem so that we could achieve the kind of scales that we, we wanted to achieve. In the two years since your paper on this technique, which is called DropSeq, came out, it's picked up widespread usage in the scientific community. How would you quantify the impact it's had on, on you and your colleagues? Yeah, it's been really exciting. Um, we're thrilled to see how much it's been adopted, how widely it's been adopted. I think since the paper came out, the protocol's been downloaded about 50,000 times from the website. And um, we've been corresponding with labs in fields of biology, very wide ranging from you know labs that study algae um, biology to yeast to turtle neuroscience and cancer. Um, fundamentally, it's because gene usage in cells is a core aspect of the tree of life, of any, any you know, cell in, in the tree of life. So um, being able to do this easily and, and, and affordably is something that I think a lot of labs are excited about. Compared to single cell techniques that already existed by the time DropSeq came out, what kind of improvement is DropSeq in terms of scalability and affordability? It's about 20 to maybe 100-fold cheaper than other approaches to this problem. And um, you know, also similar kinds of uh, uh, improvements in scalability, the ability to process 100-fold as many cells in a day. 
um, so that a scientist just doing drop seek um, in a day can easily achieve, you know, 10,000 of these measurements in a day. And that, I think, gets you to the level of really starting to see the complexity of a, of a tissue like the brain. How did everything you learned working on DropSeq and in the two years since then transition into your Boat Ignite project? We've just been really excited about the data that's been coming from DropSeq um, that has taught us about how genes are used in cells. But fundamentally, as we took a step back and we started to think about how to use this information and, and further psychiatric illness, we were wondering what other kinds of measurements and, and molecules we were missing. And one really important one um, are proteins. Proteins are the products of genes, and they're really the workhorses of the cell. They do all the things that genes direct them to do, basically. And so um, uh, working with proteins is a lot harder than working with genes. They're very kind of easy principles that allow you to kind of move genes around and manipulate them. But um, proteins are a lot harder to work with. So it was, it was a considerably more challenging problem to think about how we could capture proteins from individual cells. How does your project attempt to capture the and measure the proteins? So we're interested in basically converting the cell into this kind of gel. And by doing that, um, we kind of create a, a stabilized system in which we can uh, do lots of different um, chemical manipulations on that material and keep it kind of intact and, and know that all of those different uh, proteins came from the same cell. And so that kind of gel structure is really what allows it to be possible. So that's the idea. Of course, we have to test it and really do the experiments to see if it's going to work. How did you hit on the idea of working with gels? It really came out of uh, a great collaboration and now a series of conversations with Fei Chen. I mean, this project is a very close collaboration with him. And um, Remind everyone who Fei Chen is. Yeah, Fei Chen is a Broad Fellow here. He just started uh, just last year. And uh, Fei is a, a real expert, a pioneer in um, using these kind of gel technologies to stabilize and manipulate uh, tissues and cells. And, um, and so we really started to think, well, how could we take some of his gel technology and um, marry it to uh, our genomics and barcoding expertise to, to, again, to kind of capture this extra information from cells, the, the protein uh, that comes out of cells. Sounds like you collaborate with a lot of people. Definitely. Um, I think the, the best part about being here at the Broad is the fluidity and the openness to collaboration amongst the members here. I think, of course, we're doing cutting-edge science. That's a huge part of what the Broad is. But it's also about trying to break down sort of traditional academic barriers that exist to collaboration. And so um, I've been extremely uh, excited and also privileged to uh, have the opportunity to collaborate with amazing scientists and to sort of feel that degree of openness and interaction that you don't usually feel in science. I mean, science is often a very kind of lonely enterprise. You go down your own rabbit hole and you kind of uh, uh, don't have a lot of people or ability to interact with people. And I think here at the Broad, much more so than other places I've worked, you really don't feel alone. When you're not here at the Broad, collaborating. You spend one day a week at Massachusetts General Hospital in your clinical practice. How has that continued to inform your work? Well, uh, it's easy to lose sight when you get down into these cells and molecules and genes, um, you know, uh, the bigger picture, which is the human brain and the ways in which it can uh, unfortunately go awry for, for some people in our, in our community. And I think uh, having that connection to the clinic really keeps my eye on that and trying to think about how we can really immediately and clearly apply the work to uh, psychiatric illness. 
I think it's particularly important in psychiatry because we don't have those molecules. We don't have that kind of data that we have in cancer, especially, but also in other fields of medicine to really connect us to patients. And fundamentally, the only thing we really know about these diseases is what we see when we interact with people in the clinic. And so um, I think it's just a a really important part of uh, uh, keeping my eye on the ball, so to speak. Evan, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me. The Broder Night Podcast is produced by Bradford Krieger of Big Nice Studio. Special thanks to Scott Sassone from the Broder's Communications Department. And, of course, a huge thank you to our fantastic community of Broder Night supporters. Learn more at giving.broderinstitute.org slash Broder Night.